0: If you love this podcast and love easy and informative CEUs, then this is the deal for you. SpeechTherapyPD.com has over 175 hours of pod courses on demand, with an average of 19 new pod courses released each month. You can get ASHA Continuing Ed credit for every episode you listen to. And because I think you're terrific, I can offer $20 off a year's subscription when you use my code sup 20 for the insanely low rate of $59. Welcome to the Speech Uncensored podcast, your destination for nourishing your mind and flourishing in the medical speech and language pathology field. This week's guest is Elise Mattson. Elise has been an SLP for over 30 years and is currently the SLP clinical resource for a large multi-facility long-term care company. Most importantly, Elise is a SUP listener who had a desire to share her passion of working in skilled nursing facilities. Our discussion starts by describing what our role looks like in a SNF, uh, what typical patient populations there are and cases that we would encounter, and then we move into the nitty gritty, the common complaints SLPs encounter in this setting. Elise is here to set the story straight, dispel some myths, and empower the next generation of SLPs passionate about working in long-term care. Did somebody say empower? Well, girl, then you know I'm here for it. Like, <laughs> let's do this. My name is Leanne Porter, the host of SUP, and without further ado, let's dive in. Okay, I'm sitting down with Elise Matson today, and we're going to be talking about Speech and language pathologist in skilled nursing facilities. Um, I'm really excited about this topic. I haven't been able to have a conversation like this before, um, but it's so important because so many of us who work in the medical setting work in sniffs. And there can be, you know, I've heard lots of different stories. Like, I think it takes a special SLP to work in a sniff. And so, I'm really glad that part of our talk today will also be on addressing the benefits of working in SNFs and then dispelling some of the myths and um, learning all of the ins and outs. So welcome, Elise. Happy to
1: have you. Well, thanks so, so much for having me today. I'm excited to be here and talk to you. Um, so tell me, what made you choose
0: this topic for our talk today? Like what was, what made it kind of soar to the front for you?
1: That's. That's a great question. So I think that um, when I am trying to get new, new SLPs into various SNFs or I'm reading online in some of the groups, I feel like I see some of the um, more negative comments about SNF work and I've had such a fabulous career that I'm, it kind of bums me out like I want to tell everyone about some of the great things and I know some SLPs that love working in SNFs but I think that it gets drowned out by some of the other negative uh, thoughts so I think that this is just an opportunity to just let everybody know and I think it's really great for younger SLPs that are either just getting out of school or um, finishing up their graduate programs and they want to look for a medical speech pathology position. And there are only so many acute care settings and a sniff setting can be a great alternative to that, depending on which one. And I want to just, you know, let everybody know about the different uh, roles that we can play and how it can be a great setting depending on you and your personality.
0: Excellent. Perfect. I think this will be so helpful to so many people um, because Oftentimes, we, we don't know exactly what to expect working in that setting versus others. And uh, sometimes the only way to find out is to, to take the job there and, and to learn as you go, which can be quite bumpy for some.
1: <laughs> yes, it can.
0: <laughs> so before we dive into that, um, I want to learn a little bit more about you, Elise. Uh, tell me, where are you? What do you do? And tell me about your career as an SLP.
1: Well, I am lucky enough to live in one of the greatest cities in the country, San Diego, California. And um, I'm actually a native San Diego. And so I've been in Southern California, um, either in San Diego or nearby counties um, my whole life. And I have actually been an SLP. I know I look 25, but I've actually been an SLP for over 30 years. And um, I've had a an absolutely fantastic career. And um, I have mentored many um, SLPs. I have worked in acute care, inpatient rehab, outpatient, brain injury rehab, home health, um, SNF, you name it. Uh, but um, I a, a couple of years after I started working in acute care and inpatient, I had the opportunity to go into a SNF. And I think that I just fell in love with working with geriatrics. And I really, it just sort of really became my home. I always, um, you know, maybe 10 or 15 years ago, I would also work like a Saturday in acute care or do some extra other home health or here or there, but it just came to be my favorite. And I've been, I had been in the same sniff for about 12 years. Um, And then over the past few years, I've transitioned to more of a, what's called an SLP resource where I kind of help guide SLPs all over our organization and um, kind of help them either by training or giving advice. I mean, I absolutely, it's so great. SLPs call me and say, I have this case. What do you think I should do? Or how do I write this goal? or I want to know more about this. And so I do a lot of trainings and education with our SLPs and with other people within our organization to help guide them towards growing their speech programs in their facilities. Excellent, that does sound. that's what I do now.
0: Yeah, that sounds really rewarding and really engaging.
1: It is. It's really, it's really great. I kind of made up the job and somehow got to do it. So I'm pretty excited about it.
0: That's awesome. (laughs) Tell me your secrets. How did you wing that? Like, I want to know.
1: Well, I just, um, I, because I have been around for a while, people would call me with questions and, um, as the wrinkles start to appear, I guess you get more of those kinds of questions. What do I do about? And as that started to happen, it just started to feel like a job. And I so I kind of just went to the people that I work with and said, I think this might be a job. And it was a little bit of a job and then a little bit more and a little bit more until finally I try to see patients about once a week still, because that's still my love. Um, there's no you know, sort of better feeling than helping a patient or talking to a family or um, putting that PMV on a patient that's had a trach. Um, There's no better feeling than that. So I really try and keep my hands in it as much as I can. But um, at the very least, I still supervise CFYs and and spend time with them. Of course, all of this so much more difficult during this pandemic. Mm -hmm. All of it. Yes.
0: All right. So, Um, so it sounds like you've worked in like a variety of our medical settings and you were saying that working with geriatrics and working in the skilled nursing facility has been your favorite and that's where your passion is. And that's where you're spending these years of your career. So what does it, I would, I would really like for you to tell me what is working in a sniff like for you compared to what you read online? Because from my frame of reference, all I hear is like what I see online, like the negativity that gets put out there. Um, So like, I was hoping you could kind of tell me like, what is it like working for you, like working in a skilled nursing facility for you?
1: Well, I think that one of the first things we should talk about is kind of what it means to work at a SNF. And maybe we could say as compared to acute care or something like that, but one of the things in a sniff is that you kind of take on so many different roles and i i guess in other settings this happens too but i sort of know these the best and um i think one of the things that changed over the years now remember i've been doing this 30 years so things you know with the way we're paid and the way we're hired and who we report to changed over time but Basically, you know, when you work in a SNF, you're reporting to a director of rehab who probably is not a speech pathologist, right? Whereas, I don't know, in acute care, I've worked in a in a, um, you know, sort of a group of SLPs, and there's an SLP in charge, and you're reporting to them, and it's all sort of SLP related. But in a SNF, you're you're usually reporting to a director of rehab, very often a physical therapist or an occupational therapist. And so, you know, sort of learning what that means and how to communicate with them so they understand what you are trying to achieve is super important. Um, you work in this rehab team, physical, occupational, and speech therapy, which I have in some, time, some ways questioned over the years, whether we sort of belong with them. And then in other ways, it, it seems very right. It sort of, I think depends on the patient. Like in some, sometimes when you're working with all three disciplines, it feels like such a great match. And then other times I think about, you know, the, the SLPs that work in ENT offices, and that seems like, well, that seems like a better idea to me than this, not for the setting, but just like who you're aligned with, because what PT and OT are doing can seem so different. But if you really you don't know, have great team number members, I think you kind of come to see that this is like a relationship that's so important that, that we know that our patients that are moving their bodies better can have better cognition, and we know that our patients that we can improve their communication skills can make better progress with their physical goals so these are you know it's very important to be part of that, um, be part of that team and Um, The other piece to working in a SNF is the importance of that interdisciplinary team and the team within that nursing home, right? And this has become even more crystal clear um, as the new payment model went into effect, PDPM. I feel like the importance of speech putting in, you know, why does this patient have a mechanically altered diet? Do they have a swallowing problem? How can we capture this? Yes, these are businesses, usually, and so um, this new system creates a different way for us to capture things and, and and get paid. And so I find that the interdisciplinary team, and what I mean by that is nursing and social work and activities um, and um, the treatment nurse and the MDS nurse, all of those people are relying more on speech um, since PDPM went into effect to help guide them with their patients and make sure that we're getting the right information. Um, so I think that's become very important. Um, I think it, not just in the sniff setting, but in, uh, in all settings, you know, we have to be an educator, right? We have to be the person that educates others about what we do. And if any of my, uh, former CFYs are listening, they're going to know about this analogy that I use. In the difference between a SNF setting and maybe an acute care setting, I sometimes use the analogy, big fish, small pond, small fish, big pond. In an acute care setting, there are lots of people with lots of advanced degrees helping our patients, and that's wonderful. And sometimes working in that environment is invigorating, right, because you're meeting so many people with doctors and and MDs and you're working with lots of people. But in some, sometimes you can feel kind of lost in that setting where you're just one of many people that feels that you have something important to contribute. In the SNF setting, our knowledge and what we do in terms of our knowledge of swallowing disorders, language, speech, cognitive, like they need us so badly in there. Those nurses need us to help them. Um, understand what it means to have a swallowing problems, Um, understand how we can help these patients. And so we become sort of um, I don't know if the word elevated is right, but kind of more important. And if we can advocate for our services and help educate, we can become a very important figure in that SNF setting. Um, I also think it's important that we help mentor other speech pathologists in that setting, so they learn what it's like. And I do quite a bit of that. And then finally, one of the greatest parts of a sniff is that it really is somebody's home, right? For many sniff, there are people that live there. It's their home. And so I always talk about that we have to become a family member to them. So what does that does that mean? Bringing a gift at, at the holidays for some of our residents um, helping out during COVID times during COVID. We um, our SLPs have had to step in and do all kinds of jobs, right? Because everybody's out sick. And so that feeling of, you know, when you picture a sniff setting, a lot of times people picture residents sitting in the hallways with nothing to do and just sitting there and everybody feels sad. And if you picture Walking down the hallway of a sniff you've never been in and there's, let's say, there's four residents in the hallway and you, you kind of feel uncomfortable because you don't know who they are and it's, un, you know, maybe they don't look like what you're used to seeing. But then after you get to know them, they're your friends or your family, right? That's Mr. Smith and Mrs. Jones. And these are people that you know and you know their families. And so it there's so much more there in terms of that relationship. There are people, there are residents of a nurse of nursing homes that I've known for 10 plus years. So these are people that you come to know, right? And and have relationships with. So I I just think that there's a real importance to sort of this vast role that we play within a facility. And I think other therapists that work in SNFs can say that one of the reasons that they stay is because of that kind of feeling of family, both with the people that they work with and the residents that they serve. And that that's, you know, that it's not right, wrong or other. It's a different type of position than when you work in acute care and you're doing a lot of very high level diagnostic work. Great work. But you may not see them or know them for as long. Right. You don't you don't get the, the same type of relationship. So that's kind of I don't know. Um, That's kind of how I feel about my role in the SNF setting.
0: Um, That's really comprehensive. I really like that. And I hear a lot as well about how education and advocacy is a very large part of the job for SLPs working in SNFs. Um, But I have a hard time reconciling that with other things I hear about productivity standards. And feeling like, when when do I get an opportunity to provide that education on a one-on-one setting to nursing staff or in a group presentation style, um, when the expectations placed on me are to be working with patients and, and being able to bill for that time? So how are you able to reconcile this um, with
1: SLPs who work in SNFs? I think that's, that's actually a great question. Um, I think there's a couple things to that. One, to, one thing is there might be education related to a certain patient. And in that case, that's part of the patient care, right? So if you are bringing in a group of um, nurses while you're showing a technique or a strategy or something that um, oral care, whatever education you might be doing, and they're in there with you and you're helping them understand that, that's part of your session. So we don't have to worry so much about that. But I think what's important here is as a speech pathologist, and I actually always, you know, when I'm interviewing somebody that maybe is going to do a CFY or somebody that's young, when I interview them, I want, I I usually ask them about how well they know (laughs) because you do have to kind of step up and advocate for things. So if let's say you're, The person that does kind of your CNA training in your nursing home wants you to do an in-service on um, safe feeding techniques or something like that, right? And your director says, well, you know, you don't have time for that. You have to be productive. You know, it's really up to us as a therapist to say, but this is important. And if I do this, I might end up with more patients on my caseload. Number one, number two, it's going to help with quality care. So it's, it's sort of up to us to sort of state what the reality is, because sometimes we, there are leaders out there that are just like, Oh no, you know, just see your patients. I'll have a, a, an aide do that, or I'll have somebody else do that. And you have to step up and just say, you know, this is what's, what's important for this facility. Or, you might say, you know what, I'll do one shift. I'll do a 15 minute in service for this shift and then I'm gonna write everything out and you, then you, you know, maybe you have a champion in nursing that you can have them do the other shift or something like that. So, you know, you, I, I try not to make, you know, when we see like blanket statements about situations, I just think that we have to take each situation and each place and individually with what our values
0: are. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I can see that. Um, there are going to be so many different unique factors because, um, like what you mentioned in that example, is that there may be particular directors of rehab that are very driven just by the bottom line. And so those are the people that you have to kind of approach one on one. And that's not saying that every director of rehab is that way and that they're going to be like, well, um, you can't do these presentations because you should be seeing patients. Like you won't always have to like fight that
1: particular battle, but yeah, it is I've handy. I've never had to fight that battle, by, by the way. I've never actually had that happen. I know I read about it, but, I've, but I think part of that is, you know, of course I've been doing this a while and I've, but you know, it might be my personality, but it's just something that I would never, I would never tolerate. and so. You know, getting, knowing your own value and then making sure that others see your value is an incredibly important thing in your career, no matter where you work. And it's especially true, especially in a SNF setting where you might be the only SLP there, right? And if you're the only SLP there, it can feel a little bit like a little island sometimes. Um, and um, one of the things I recommend, by the way, if you are the S- only SLP there, is to build up your caseload so you're no longer the S- only SLP there, which I've done multiple times in my career, <laughs> um, and, and create, you know, a buzz about what it means to have speech services and uh, what's important to those residents so that there is more work. And I know some people might perceive that as just seeing everybody in the facility, but uh, people that know me know that that's not true. (laughs) And we're just trying to create, um, you know, create an atmosphere where our services are as important as physical therapy services, right? And and that has, you know, part of that, you know, when I was first working in SNFs years ago, you know how, if you hear the stories, we we sort of got along with very little, went into our job on our own and nobody really talked to us. And it was very like, yeah, I'm fine. I can go see my patients. I don't need anything but this, you know, 30 year old workbook and I'm good. (laughs) And so part of it is if you're an older therapist like myself, it's a little bit of our fault, right? For not advocating earlier, but we just didn't know. And now we know that we need more, right? and that our services are important and that there's so much more um, that we can do with these patients. And you know, there's there's such a wide variety. There's lots of nursing homes that are really like short-term rehab places. And there are others that are nursing homes, right? And so again, kind of going back to, if you think you want to work in one, these are all things that you need to know like before you enter, you should know what type of facility it is. Actually, I I have to say in the past couple of years when I interview new grads, um, it seems that the graduate programs are doing such a good job. I I think they must help them with the questions because the types of questions that I get are much more um, intelligent about things like that. Like, do you have short-term rehab? Do you have long-term rehab? know, that kind of things. And and I think that that that's good that there's, you know, sort of more awareness of it.
0: Good, good. Um, I'm wondering if we can go into the next topic about uh, describing the patient populations that SLPs might be working with in the SNF setting, and then maybe get into a couple case studies. Are you ready for that?
1: I am. Um, Well, this is great because there's so such a great variety. There's adults. I mean, there's geriatrics, of course. Right. And um, but it's basically adult populations. And some of this, interestingly enough, um, is kind of dependent on the type of um, facility you are and some of the insurance issues. So if you have a very busy short term rehab with like, you know, one of the major insurances like a Kaiser or something like this in your facility, you may see more patients that are not geriatric in your setting because this is where they're doing their primary rehab, right? And so it a little bit depends on, again, the kind of makeup of the facility, where it is in town um, and the type of patients you're getting, but certainly basically adults geriatrics. Um, I suppose when I was doing brain injury rehab, not in a sniff, I would see young, you know, more like teenage um, patients. But I that we do sometimes see um, people in their, I would say, in their twenties and thirties, but not as often, right? Um, the facility I used to work at had a trach and vent unit, and so sometimes we would get young accident uh, accident patients. Um, We see every kind of disorder you can think of, um, dysphagia, cognitive communication deficits, speech production, voice, aphasia, apraxia, all of it. I think it's interesting and sort of funny though, that like there are facilities that just see a lot of aphasia patients and then there's others that just never see them, um, like, I'll be talking to a therapist in another part of town, another part of the country, and they'll say, Kyle, we never see any aphasia patients. And I'll be like, oh, my God, we I've got like three different types of expressive aphasia patients right now. So it, I think it just sort of depends. Um, it might depend on whether or not you're sort of the facility of choice for the area in terms of what you, whether you get the post-stroke patients or not, um, things like that. We see all levels of severity um, and... Um, they may be very physically disabled. They may be, you know, not. I mean, we've all seen that patient. We walk in and they're practically walking already. And you go to listen to them talk and it sounds like gibberish. And you know that you probably have a posterior stroke, some sort of Wernicke's aphasia. So it's like the race is on, right? Because they're not going to stay there very long because they're physically already doing so well. So we see all types of different um Uh, different severity. We see lots of neurological patients, of course, neurodegenerative diseases. Um, uh, I've had, like just a few years ago, I had a young ALS patient in his 30s. Lots of respiratory, um, you know, with the, with the advent, or not the advent, but just the kind of talk about respiratory disorders and respiratory muscle strength training. um, I've tried with when I'm mentoring other SLPs to really kind of keep their eye out, if the patient's on oxygen and they have some sort of respiratory diagnosis, there's a chance there could be a swallowing or a speech problem that we need to address as well. Um, but sometimes it's things that you wouldn't think of that might just be an orthopedic patient or a post-surgical patient or a you know sort of general illness that somebody comes in with um, that somehow end up needing speech services. And like if you're working in a sniff and you're only seeing a few patients a day, it might be because you're only getting sort of the most obvious cases where they definitely had a dysphagia in the hospital or they definitely had an aphasia. And it's kind of those cases that are a little less obvious that it's up to us to kind of bring to the light so nurses understand about it, that the doctors understand. I think, you know, when we're talking about roles, um, I think the relationship with physicians um, is super important. And it's easier now because they seem to be in the facilities more often now. And um, I mean, I just make sure I have their number, and just text them and, you know, then I can do whatever, then they let me do whatever I want. It's like, as soon as they know me and we've established who's who and what's happening, it's that's the end of it. I can pretty much, you know, do whatever it is is needed for the mm-hmm. patient. I think that's super important. That is really uh, good.
0: Um, I'd love to share a short story that cracks me up when I think about it about like communicating with doctors. Yeah, um, an outpatient will get referrals, um, you know, for swallowing, and so um, you know I'm just going to see them as they come in, and if they haven't had a recent video swallow study or fees. I really can't begin an exercise program or know how to treat their dysphagia. So I'll go back and I'll contact the doctors and I'll be like, you know, with your approval, I'll put in the video swallow study order. So we know what we're working with here. And, you know, the doctors respond. They're like, yes, of course. But this, this one doctor was like, you're the expert. So of course you order whatever you want. And I was like, I think we're going to be great friends.
1: (laughs) Those are the ones you want, right? I know. Yeah. <laughs> I know. I, I, I really try. I, I, I find those relationships to be super important. I think we have to get away from "they're the doctor kind of thing, because we're all just trying to work towards a common goal. Right. And that is to help this person in whatever way we can. Um, and I don't, I don't know that, um, you know they have their role and we have our role and I think working together and I I think most doctors that are entering into the SNF world understand that but there are still some that I'm okay whatever Um, (laughs) the cool thing the other cool thing I wanted to say is that you know we think of the SNF setting right And like I said, you know, you may be working in a post-acute kind of rehab setting where there's a lot of patients that just came from the hospital, and I will say they are way sicker than they were, I would say, 10 to 15 years ago. Um, They come to us much, much sicker because we can do much, much more, like in a lot of facilities in terms of treatments. Um, But a lot of SNF settings also have outpatient clinics. Okay, um, there are SNF settings that are attached to um, assisted living or independent living um, settings, right? And so you may be doing outpatient, but going to see them in those um, settings. So kind of like a home health, and then we have our long-term care patients. So the nice thing is there could be more of a variety than you might imagine within a SNF setting. Um, and I always tell people like if you're working in a sniff, but you loved outpatient and your facility isn't doing it. Like, why don't you ask if you can get outpatient going more power to you, man. Um, I always liked it when I could have like a couple of outpatients also, cause it's just, you know, it's like a, a little break. Now for me, it isn't something that I would want to do all the time, but I like it, you know, it's like, we can give them homework and they do their homework. It's so nice. <laughs> So I I think that um, it isn't always just those long term care patients that are li- residents that are living in a nursing home. That isn't everybody, right? So I think it's important to to know that as well. Um, so a couple of examples when we see our short term rehab patients, it might be like more of an acute, like a like a more obvious patient, like an acute CVA, right? They come in, they have a dysarthria and the dysphagia and we're working on all of those things that you um, that you would know already and it isn't much different from any other setting that you work on, except for that it may la- go on for a couple, two, three weeks versus if you were in acute care, you might see them a couple of times. If you're an outpatient, you're going to see them a few days a week. So it might be more like every day for a few weeks. Um, I had, um, I did have one CFY one time and she realized about, I don't know, she was about halfway through. And I think she realized this just wasn't the setting for her. She was about on her sixth visit. She's like, I just don't know what to do with them anymore. And so I think it's not for everybody. Some people like the kind of the excitement of changing it up every day with somebody different. Whereas some people really like that establishing the um, relationship with the patient and the, the staff, uh, or excuse me, with the families um, over time. And we would have something less obvious. Maybe somebody was in the hospital with an abdominal surgery or something like that. They're 87 years old. They have a heart of their heart of hearing. They have maybe a mild cognitive impairment. And so after surgery, of course, they've come off there. We're not treating them just when they're in a post uh, acute delirium. But after that, you know, how are we going to make sure that that person is communicating their needs within that setting. Um, Do we need to make sure that, do they need a whiteboard? Do they need um, some sort of amplifier? Do we need to talk to the nurses about making sure there's not too much noise in the room for them? Um, Do they need some sort of system to remember information? And so even though they came in for something unrelated to what speech normally does, that doesn't mean they don't need speech services. Um, And then Maybe somebody had hip surgery, because they do that on very, very elderly patients, um, broke their hip, and they have maybe a severe dementia, and they're yelling out, and if you've worked in a sniff, you know this scene, the nurse is rolling her cart down the hallway, she gets to the room where the patient is yelling out, and says... How much pain are you in? What's your pain level on a scale of one to 10? And this patient has severe dementia and they don't have an answer for that. And so there's a real issue here where there's somebody that is trying to tell us something about how she or he feels and they can't. So maybe we take a look at different visual pain scales. How are they gonna communicate their pain levels to the nurses? The nurse can't, you can't stand at the doorway of a patient with severe dementia and expect them to know. I mean, with dementia patients, you really need to be about maybe 12 to 18 inches away from them for them to really understand what's happening. But maybe there's even a side that's better for you to stand on. Maybe there's a position the patients should be in for them to communicate that information better. Maybe they can use those smiley faces, the long, Baker faces to communicate their pain, but maybe they need it made bigger. That's communication, right? And so again, are we going to fix dementia? No, we're not fixing dementia, the patient has dementia. But can we help to facilitate communication for the most important thing, which is how much pain is this person in? Do I need to give them narcotics? Or not so there are some different examples of some different patients that um, we've worked with in the past and that we do work with in the SNiff setting.
0: Those are excellent. I really enjoyed that example with the patient with dementia. I think it really highlights what you were talking about earlier as our role as liaisons and educators and advocates, and how it's a skilled um, Oh, I just like blanked on my word. I was going to say skilled provision, but that's not what I wanted to say. Um, a skilled service. It is
1: a skilled service. Um, it, You know, when we talk about dementia programs, we are not talking about improving memory, right? We don't say the, you know, in fact, I'll lose it if I see patient's memory will improve from severe to mild, (laughs) I will lose it. Um, But we're there as experts in communication, okay? And so if we have a resident with dementia and they're resisting care or they're falling, I mean, I think it's so funny when um, there's a fall in a nursing home And it feels like the sirens are going off and physical therapy runs in to save this patient as they're lying on the floor. And really, sometimes I say, maybe you should send speech in there to find out what it is they needed when they fell before they forget what it was, right? Because usually falling is about a lack of ability to communicate what they needed. Sometimes it it was just that they just wanted to get up and walk around, right? But when we see, let's say we see a resident that is resisting care, and the CNA, and so I'll go in, and I know it looks like I'm watching them with the CNA, but what I'm doing is trying to see what kind of communication exchange they're having, and how maybe we can change that so that things go better. So if the CNA goes in and says, we're going to take a shower now, and the pa- the resident just starts nodding, and then the CNA starts taking their clothes off, and then the resident starts hitting the CNA, something happened there with that communication. We know that over time with dementia residents at the Um, auditory comprehension can be affected, and the sensory information can get muddled, right? And maybe they needed a gesture. Maybe they needed the bottle of shampoo in front of them to remind them of what that was going to be. Now, some people say, well, that's OT, that's showering. No, 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 I'm not talking about helping them shower. I'm talking about how the CNA is communicating what's next and what's happening. Does that make sense?
0: It absolutely does. This reminds me of a conversation that I had with Tipa Snow on the podcast, and she is an occupational therapist yes, who's really passionate. Yeah, with about the um, working with patients with dementia, and really, it's not. She she trains um, the care providers on these things, and it's all about communicating and getting through like what's next. And it's not relying just on verbal communication, but it's providing visual cues and making sure that the cues that you're providing are gesture based. Um, And then understanding, like, if you've asked a simple question to this patient and they're like nodding, yes, like they agree, that's because they could be reflecting you, you're smiling at them, you're nodding at them, and they're just mirroring you. So they may have no idea what's happening and they had no idea that they agreed to, to get ready for a shower. And then suddenly you're taking their clothes off. Like, yeah, I'm going to come out swinging at you too.
1: (laughs) And, and it's interesting because I, I think, you know, CNAs are, are need to be our best friends, by the way, make friends with your CNAs. They are so, so important to us. And they they know these residents. If they say that a certain swallow strategy doesn't work, they're likely correct. (laughs) Um, uh, And they know what's happening with these residents and they care so deeply um, as well. And I think that, um, you know, sometimes it's the way that a CNA or anybody does the morning more might be more about, what's expeditious for them or what's gonna work the best for them versus what's gonna work for the, the best for the resident. And and the I think the hard part a lot of SLPs would say is convincing them that if you stop and do these three things first, that you might not have the struggle later and it does end up saving you time. But that's you know that takes some time. One of the things um I have found over time is that the more specific I am when we say, oh, don't forget, you have to give them cues to do that. That's just not enough, right? When we're asking a nurse to do a specific thing, we have to be specific. Stand here, say this, put your hand here and let them know what what has worked for you and have them do it and coach you back with the resident to see, see what works so that we can get follow through. And also remember about what success means in the SNF. If we're seeing our long-term residents and they have dementia, if we're trying to decrease an adverse behavior by adding some sort of communication strategies, I don't think we can expect that 100% of the time that that's gonna work. I don't think we get 100% when we're talking about dementia because it just doesn't work that way. But if we're seeing some reduction, I, I still call that a success because it still means that they're yelling out less than what they were, right? Or that it, we've given another tool to, um, to somebody. I was just talking to somebody the other day about when somebody gets to be you know, down in the lower levels, of the dimension, they start grabbing onto things and onto people, and it's easy to perceive that as um, agitation when it's really not. They're grabbing and and think about how when a baby grabs onto you in the same way, you don't think of that as a problem, right? That's cute, right? But as the elderly go, you know, into a more severe and end stage dementia, they start to do that. And instead of you know sort of grabbing them and pushing them away and upsetting them, can we come up with something else that they can hold on to? Can we give them a way? That's better, so that they don't um, they don't feel bad. We don't want to make them feel badly, and that you feel like um, you have like nurses want to feel like they have a solution, right? They want to be able. It's like I, I, we had this patient that had a um I think he had a brain tumor, and we had a little book of pictures with his family in it. And it was one of the times when we just had to do no training with nursing because it worked so beautifully. He would get agitated every afternoon and the nurses would give him this little book to look at and he would calm right down. And it was so amazing to see them just like following through with it because it worked, right? Because it worked so well. Not everything's going to work that well because when you're dealing with residents dementia, it's, you know, it's harder It's harder to get success, but sometimes it does. You just find something that works for them um, and and it's successful. And so I think what I want to say is that when we're working in a sNiff setting and we're working with patients that that live in our facility, it sometimes might mean that you see them now, and maybe you see them in a few months because things have changed. And that doesn't mean that you're doing something fraudulent or wrong. It means that you're reassessing them to keep them at their highest level. So just like physical therapy would reassess somebody's walking, if that changed, it's the same for communication. And sometimes because it's not as obvious or swallowing, it's not as obvious as somebody falling on the floor. You can see that, right? Um, But somebody... um, not eating or getting pneumonia it's like less obvious you can't tell right away that it that it needs a speech pathologist to go in um and then one last thing i wanted to mention was about covid i think that um, when we talk about communication we've really seen an impact on our residents with covid they've been in their rooms for basically a year um, and when we see them they're wearing a mask and we're wearing a mask and there can really be some communication breakdowns and and so as an SLP in the SNF you know when this was first happening I was like stop we're ordering 50 white small whiteboards for this for everybody to have and you know, we can let you know whether it's a whiteboard or an amplifier or whatever it is needed for this resident, but we have to do something. We can't just keep yelling at hard of hearing residents louder and louder and louder without having any visual impact. You know, I actually work, one of our OTs is deaf and uses lip reading. And it's like been so difficult for him because he can't do that at all. Of course, he never complains about it at all. But, you know, these are things that are really impacting our residents quite a bit. And again, communication is our jam and we need to make sure that we're we're attending to that.
0: All right. Um, so I'm wondering now if we can talk a little bit about the specific benefits of working in a SNF. Like, I feel like you've been touching on it, but I didn't know if you wanted to like have like a specific time to really address some key points there, and then dispel some myths of that some commonly held misconceptions about working in skilled nursing facilities.
1: Absolutely. Um, well, first of all, one of the some of the great things about working in a SNF, and I think the thing that comes up the most is kind of the flexibility autonomy of it. So, um, I mean, when my son was younger. I would work hours that made it so that I could get make sure and take and pick up from school. Um, so there's a lot of, um, I think, young moms that feel like that the SNF is flexible. You can add a Saturday, take out a weekday, um, things like that where, where you're able to kind of create your own schedule. Um, it's a wide variety of, of patients. I like that we can establish relationship with our patients. Um, There are leadership opportunities as well. I'm sure there's leadership opportunities in lots of settings, but if you want to be a director of rehab or you want to even be an administrator or you want to be somebody at, you know, in some companies there's sort of regional level positions, those are all kind of opportunities for you if that's something that you um, want to do. Um, I think that, The pace I sort of like, I worked, you know, I've worked, like I said, in lots of settings. When I was younger, I really liked that fast acute care pace. I really liked it. But one of the things I liked, like in the sniff setting is that even though, let's say somebody has an acute dysphagia and it's very serious, you just have just a minute to breathe and sort of kind of go, what do I want to do with this person? You know, what's the best thing for this person moving forward? Um... And I think that also there's really this opportunity to kind of collaborate with other SLPs in our community and um, kind of work together with um, the hospital SLPs, the SNF SLPs, the home health SLPs, the clinic um, SLPs. And you can imagine after doing this for a few years that I know lots of them. And we've worked together a lot, and um, there's acute care SLPs that we would work together, and he would send his patients to me, and I would send my patients to him, and um, things like that. So it's I think it's really important to kind of create those um, um, relationships within the community. And then finally, in terms of the SNP, there's kind of this new focus on sp- speech since PDPM, um has gone into effect and so that's kind of cool like they just can't forget us anymore in the same way they could before i mean i think i can remember one time there was a patient being discharged on home health and like their main problem was dysphagia that was it they could walk but they had a g tube and they sort of forgot to order home health speech i'm like how could you have forgotten i mean this is the, the reason. Thing. It. it's the one thing so um i feel like they can't forget us anymore because it's like all over everything now speech slp case mix you know it's there so i sort of that's sort of exciting for me so um i i want to say about some of the things you know when i when i say the word myth by the way i want to talk about some of these myths um, I'm more talking about my experience. I'm not saying that they're. I I read what's out there. I'm just talking about how I've been able to kind of get around some of those things that um, that we see. But I'm not saying that they're not out there. One of the things um, I, again, I think that we used to do is just sort of be okay with. Um, uh, you know, back in the day, it would be a copy of the mini mental and a walk book. And, you know, we would be like, okay, we're fine. That's all I need. I mean, what else could I possibly need, right? Um, But that's just not true. And we know better now and we need to to do that. And so when a therapist says to me, I don't have any tests or I don't have any materials or I can't meet my productivity guidelines or whatever they are, it's time for you to sort of step up and advocate for what you need. If you need a rolling cart with a laptop so that you can document right when you get out of your room or right when you're in the room, um, then, you know, then so be it. Um, I have always said this is a business and we need to treat it as such also. We can't just say I'm a clinician and this is what I need. Um, I have always done this thing where I write out what it is that I want, whether it's a class or a test or something. Why I need it, how much it costs, and how I think it's going to benefit the facility, and that's not too hard to do, right? Okay, I want I want to be trained. It I want to go to the cl- class um, from AMP Care. Why? Because I think it's a you know um, a good way to treat dysphagia. Um, how is it going to help? Well, it's going to allow us to do X, Y, and Z for our dysphagia patients. And, um, you know, I'll, we'll be able to say we're certified in this or, you know, whatever whatever it is. Um, I really want to have the test, the CLQT test. Why do you need that? Well, I need that in order to better assess my residents with cognitive dis, um, deficits so that we can... Um, um, treat those residents and help them successfully return to their prior level or you know whatever it is but but when you do that you set them up you know you're sort of speaking their language does that make sense Leanne? Yes
0: it does yep that actually absolutely makes sense because um, they're answering to somebody else above them and they need to be to tell that person why they need this in their budget and why they're spending that money on that thing. Like we're answerable to them. They're answerable to somebody else too.
1: Right. And, and I think that one of the things is in the, like if you walk into a physical therapy gym, I always say this, but they've never run out of TheraBand. Like they don't, they have their products that they're always ordering. Right. Because it's been, it has been taken and accepted that these are things that they need to do their job. In the past, I think speech has always kind of said, well, we don't need much to do our job, right? And I think that those times have come and gone and there are things that we need to do our job. Um, And so like understanding what you need and being mindful of the entity that you're working with I think is super helpful. In achieving what you want. Um, if you want to, you know I hear, oh, if we're in a sNiff setting, you can't do an instrumental, right? Don't we hear that all the time? I mean I think that again, there are probably lots of SNFs in my age group that have excuse me lots of SLPs in my age group that ha- worked early in their career not doing modifieds, right? And it was just kind of like the accepted way that, and as we know more, we have to sort of do more, right? And so, um, you know, see if there's a mobile MBS or fees provider in your area, if you want to do them. Um, see if your, insur- your HMO will contract with the mobile provider. Um, talk with the acute care SLPs and make sure they're doing MBSs because we do see a lot of times where they're there for three weeks and it never got done and then we have to do it at the SNF which um, is a lot more difficult to do and so um, I'll go to my the person that does the admissions that is kind of the liaison between the hospitals and um, and the SNF and say please make sure if they're coming to us with a modified diet or a G tube that they've had a, a, an MBS first or a fees first, so that we can better assess them. And so again, it isn't just I want to do an MBS. It's what else can I do to make sure that that's happening for that patient? And um, you know, like I said, we have to create this like community. You might be the only um, SLP at your SNF, but you don't have to be the, the only SLP that cares about the patients in your community. And so trying to form that, com- that community of um, SLPs that you know, I think is super important. Um, ask for support from more experienced clinicians um, so that if you're having trouble making it in your setting, what else can you do? You may not know what questions to ask Um, and market yourself in your facility, right? Let everybody know what it is you do. Um, It isn't enough to say I'm a speech pathologist and I treat swallowing, speech, and cognition. That doesn't translate for a nurse to um, a resident being isolated in their room or a resident striking out. Like they don't see that as a cognitive problem. Right. You know what I mean? Like, so we have to like to just to give them a list of disorders we treat is probably not enough. We have to point it out when we see it. Look, see, look at that. See, can you hear their voice? Doesn't that sound different than it used to sound a couple of months ago? There's something going on here so that they start to en- understand. And then all of a sudden they'll be like, oh, you know what, Elise? I feel like I have to crush their meds now. I didn't used to have to crush their meds. Do you think they're okay? What's going on? Where they start asking questions. And so that they start to understand um, what's happening. And of course, you know, using your online communities, listening to podcasts like this one. Um, and um, I really like SLPs and SNFs. Um, group online because they ask a lot of questions about sniffs um, as well. So those are some ways to kind of like, you know, it's about, it's not that you might not have things that are challenging in your sniff. there might be solutions for you as well. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, like no workplace is perfect. There's all going to at every place we work, there will be obstacles. There will be things to overcome. You will need access to different kinds of things. Um And sometimes you're, you might be the first SLP there um who is able to kind of move the practice forward. And so it's going to be a very big uphill battle. And so to do that, like, you'll need a network of help. And so that's all the things that you've been talking about, you know, that you are befriending and equipping the CNAs and the nurses so that they trust you and they see you as a source of reliable and helpful information. Um, It's reaching out to a network of SLPs in your community um, where you either send your residents when they go to the hospital or you're, well, it's probably a back and forth (laughs) when they need to go there for, for a hospital day and when they're discharged from the hospital to your facility and then in other locations. And then there's just the community of SLPs online in a lot of different areas. Um, like I'm thinking a lot of different like uh, formats. So there's Facebook groups, there's the Instagram community. Um, and then there's a lot, a lot of smaller groups within that to really like plug in and get connected with SLPs who um are working together to really advance our profession and it's really exciting to see.
1: I think so and I I I love I like the online communities because I think it at least gets the conversations going and I don't know about you but I feel like it has really helped our new grads like understand better what they're getting into, right? Like I you know one of the things I don't like is when a new grad gets hired for a sniff job and they didn't ask the questions and it wasn't offered to them, right? The information wasn't off. Op- Do you know what you're getting into? Do you understand you're going to be the only one there? Do you feel comfortable in your own skin to advocate for yourself? Because I don't know at 24 years old, if I would have been okay with that. And, um, and so I think it's cool for them. Cause they, they're, they have like a better source of information about what the real world is like. Um, and I think that, the grad schools do a better job now of giving real world examples than when I was in school.
0: Good, good. That's so great to hear because I know um, at my first job, I was like, what what was I even doing the last two years? Like, (laughs) they didn't prepare me for any of this. Now, that's a gross exaggeration. But for example, at my first job, it was expected that I would Um, call the insurance companies and get the insurance authorizations for my patients. That is not typically something SLPs are asked to do, but that was a unique feature at my first job. And because I had no other frame of reference, like it was never really discussed, I thought that that was something I needed to have known how to do. And so there's- What
1: did I miss? Why, you know, I know. Yeah, yeah. I I have done- plenty of insurance authorizations. I actually liked it because that kind of thing, because then I would just get to know those people. And Again, you could tell that's kind of me. Like if I can get to know you and you understand what I'm trying to do, then great. And then if the people that gave the authorization knew me, then I would never, I've had people that provide, op- give authorization for therapy, ask me on other cases before, you know, it's like, so then, like I don't know, I I always feel like if I could get to know you and we had a relationship, that then, you know, there was like an understanding, and I could more likely get my six visits or whatever it is insurance was going to give me, um, for therapy. But it's so true; you just never know, you know, these odd jobs that were never talked about in school. And I will say, um, I would love to see a little bit more education on dementia in grad schools. Not this is part of our topic because. It is such a huge part of our population and it's a growing part of our population. And I don't know. I know some schools probably have classes in it, but I think a lot of schools have lectures on it um, or Mm -hmm. a week on it within the cognition um, part of our classes. So love to see a little bit more of that.
0: Yes, yes. Because I feel like when I graduated, I was really in the frame of reference of, you know, I provide rehabilitative services. You know, I quote, fix things. Of course, my view on that has radically shifted over the years. And I recognize that, as you've mentioned multiple times in our discussion today, you know, we're not going to fix dementia. We're not going to make it better, but we can improve and facilitate communication, which may result in reducing behaviors and improving relations between staff and residents and the resident's quality of life. Right. And so that's what we really need to focus on is is equipping ourselves with that information, that education, and then empowering others and sharing that information with the CNAs and the nurses and other staff.
1: Right. Right. Yeah. So I hope that this gives you a little bit better idea about what it's like to work in a SNF.
0: I think so. I think this was great, Elise. Thank you so much for coming on and sharing about your passion. It was just so exciting for me to hear um, about an SLP who loves sniffs and has loved her career in them and wants to share that passion with others. Um, So that's wonderful. Thank you so much.
1: Thank you. I really appreciate the opportunity and um, you take care.
0: Thanks for listening to another edition of the Speech Uncensored podcast. Show notes with links to resources mentioned in the episode are posted on speechuncensored.com. I'd love for you to subscribe to the podcast and leave a thoughtful review on Apple Podcasts. Shout out to the hardworking team at SpeechTherapyPD.com for their sweet editing skills and for sponsoring Asha CEU credit for this episode. And finally, I'd like to leave you with my wish for you to nourish your mind so that your practice can flourish.